Welcome to I'm Obsessed With This, the Netflix podcast about the shows and films viewers cannot get enough of, sort of like how Dr. Lisa Sanders cannot get enough baffling symptoms in her email inbox. Today, I'm joined by writer and co-producer of I'm Obsessed With This, this podcast, Christine Fryer. Hi. Hey, Christine. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. You're the show's number one fan. I You am. listen to everything first. I listen to everything first, and I stand the hardest. I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. And when we were talking about having people on the show, you were like, I want to do diagnosis. Yeah, it was and I like... was like, I really don't want to watch diagnosis. <laughs> Please, anything for the love of God, make me never have to watch diagnosis. <laughs> and yet here we are. What can I say? I'm obsessed. I can't. <laughs> the brain wants what it wants. And my brain wants darkness. So <laughs> this show does that in a way that also gives you lightness and ethics and an idea of medicine providing a, a step forward. It's more comforting than I expected. But before we get into diagnosis, the topic of today's episode, because we're friends and I know you and this is the opposite of darkness, I have to say ever since starting, I'm obsessed with this. Every single time I say the title and especially when I begin recording, I think of the video of Chris Jenner talking about how she's obsessed with books <laughs> yes I'm obsessed. she's obsessed with reading the book i'm obsessed with reading I'm she's a, like I just got a new chloe book. i forgot to mention to you i'm obsessed with reading i'm obsessed <laughs> i'm reading this book i'm obsessed with On it Corbazier. and it's like it's a coffee, it's a coffee table book, book <laughs> with the page could not it's like 98 percent photo and then like the tiniest font for like a caption on the photo and she's like oh, i'm obsessed with reading and and the book would absolutely make the loudest creaking noise when open to any page <laughs> She flipped through it without fully extending the spine, you know? Yes. That is the first time that spine has been stretched ever in its existence. What else have you been watching on Netflix lately? I mean, I know that as as an employee of Netflix, you're watching more than the average person. <laughs> but what? because you watch so many things, they can't all be winners, you know? I feel like if anything, my bar is higher to be impressed by something or to mm. remember something, yeah. uh, <laughs> frankly. Um, Watches the Irishman. Uh, try <laughs> <like> again. Who? <laughs> who was in that? Um, all these old men. <laughs> <laughs> they all were brunette and mad. <laughs> Ghosts of Sugarland was uh, something that I watched in the past twenty four hours that I thought was pretty like um, unique for Netflix. It was like a twenty minute documentary about this group of friends in the Houston area who. Uh, like their childhood friend got recruited by ISIS and moved oh. abroad and is like... Oh, I heard about that. Yes. And it's uh, fascinating for a number of reasons, but one like... <laughs> this is not the reason to go into watching it, but it is what I took away. Um, there's like continuity in the anonymity universe of the documentary because <laughs> all of these people are fearful of their friends ISIS contacts watching the documentary and then like pursuing violence against them mm -hmm. so they all wear superhero masks to okay. shield their identity is this the one where they're all in masks because I did I read yes. about this okay. 
So they're all wearing, like, there's a Spider-Man, there's an Iron Man, but then there's continuity in, like, the flashback pictures and, like, archival footage that they show, like, from these people's childhoods. Like, Spider-Man is always Spider-Man. Like, they edit all the photos so that there's a little corresponding mask on each person. (laughs) So there'll be, you're watching a documentary, it's about a group of friends, the tone is always 100% serious, and honestly, like politically relevant things I didn't know about the Houston area things I didn't know about you know a lot of things about the American experience but then like on top of it there's this like never acknowledged comedy beat or like comedy facet that like everyone (laughs) is dressed like a seven-year-old on Halloween and like (laughs) so there will be this very serious documentary montage where they're like here are the boys like at a trip at the lake at age seven and like here are the boys at their high school graduation but they have edited like a spider-man mask on top of the head of the graduating student and it just makes me laugh but it's not a funny documentary it's not funny at all it's serious (laughs) (laughs) it's really serious (laughs) it's a very informative 20 minute watch that I would recommend to anybody but if I were recommending watching it to my friend the thing I would tell them to watch for is the masks because that's what made me go (laughs) lol this is fun to watch versus Mm -hmm. any other 20-minute documentary like how many times do you read ISIS online a day (laughs) but it's also like a serious cultural document it's a very serious cultural document that happens to have masks that happens to document our culture in other ways as well In 20 minutes. (laughs) In 20 20, minutes. Who doesn't have 20 minutes? The other thing, I know this will be of particular interest to you because I know we've talked about it before. I have finally watched How to Make an American Quilt. Oh, what did you think? I loved. Isn't it good? It's delicious. It's just little vignettes. And like they fit so much into one feature film. Ellen Burstyn is stunning, which you forget. Ellen Burstyn and Anne Bancroft smoking weed on their porch. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. There's some like good weed sister joke in that scene. I forget what it is. She's like, I'm going to need a hit or else I'm going to punch her or something to Winona Ryder. And I'm like, oh, aunts. When you're smoking love... weed with your sister. I like the, um, I like how, did you watched it recently. Yes. There's something about that movie. It, it's my go-to example of a 90s aesthetic. This sort of inimitable mood mm-hmm. of kind of the mid-90s ensemble, like dramatic ensemble. It, Not quite oscar Beatty. Like, this isn't, this isn't a prestige movie, but it's a serious drama. Even the, like, young, like, when a character is young, the young mm. version of them is, like, Claire Danes, Jared Leto. Like, every single Samantha person Mathis. in this yeah. movie is a very famous person. Samantha Mathis. But there's a, but it, it, but there's also, in addition to that, like, there's a little bit of hokiness and corniness to it. Oh, yeah. Those movies that sort of, like, toe that line in a way that either we're incapable of doing now or... I, I I don't know what the little secret sauce of those mid '90s movies is like, and the and the music, an iconic Thomas Newman score in that in that movie, mm-hmm. where like the music emboldens everything else, you know, like the music sort of convinces you that it's a better movie than it might actually be because it's so dramatic and sweeping. It earns them a lot of leeway for like the sentimentality and yes. the kind of like notebookiness Shame. or like hope shameless floats. sentimentality. It's very yes. like. Think of like 
the notebook when they're getting together and you're seeing kind of like Pinteresty aspirational lens applied to a romance, but in a way mm-hmm. that's still like delicious and valuable to you. It's sort of like, I don't know, like it has that, but manages, like you were saying, the goofiness factor so deftly. Yeah. And it also sneaks in a lot of different types of women and a lot of different mm-hmm. types of love stories in a way that doesn't feel like 1994. Um <laughs> Like Maya Angelou and her daughter are like, yeah. Oh my God, she's in that movie. She's in that movie. And like the whole reason that quilt making gets passed down to these white women is because Maya Angelou's mother sold their family's quilt to like mm-hmm. one of the woman's mother, mm-hmm. and they need and like uh, I don't know. There's just so much there that isn't necessarily there in a Sandy Bullock or Julia Roberts vehicle from the same era. Yeah. Which is kind of what you think when you see like Winona Ryder in denim, like in a 1994 <laughs> like, movie cover. You're like, oh, this is going to be. I have to write my thesis again. <laughs> She's like, I keep changing my thesis. <laughs> she goes to the public pool and someone like flirts with her and she's like. Eh. <laughs> I don't know how to handle this. <laughs> I'm <Ms>. engaged. <laughs> what are the ethics of this? Who is the, the it's Dermot or Dur, Dermot or Dylan? Dermot Mulroney or Dylan McDermott? Which one? It's Dylan. No, it's Dermot Mulroney. It's Dermot Mulroney. Yeah. So funny. He's like, I want to build us a house. And I'm like, you're 18. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, um, they're engaged and like planning a wedding. And that's the thing she's getting cold feet about. And mm-hmm. moving into a house together. He's building the house for her. And for the first <laughs> time in this movie as a couple, like offhandedly, they're so committed to one another. He asks her for the first time <laughs> if she would like to have children. And he's like, do you even want kids? <laughs> and I was like, wait, how do, you get- tomorrow. <laughs> how do you get this far and not know that? Like, what are you talking about? It's the 90s. It's the 90s. You we just got to you just got to run to the altar and figure out the specifics after the contract signed. Fall in love first, get married second. The details can come later. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's one of those movies. This movie does not hold up to scrutiny, as you can see right here. But in the moment, you're loving. They're it. just like all and in, all enveloping and just like they're quilts. They're quilts. Oh, my God. They're quilts. <laughs> They're quilts. Just a lovely quilt that you just want to wrap yourself up in. Um, I love mid-90s ensemble dramas. Mm. Fried green tomatoes. Yeah. The list goes on and on. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're not going to talk about how to make an American quilt, which (laughs) now I want to. We're going to talk about something I don't want to talk about, which is the medical industry. (laughs) Diagnoses of any kind. A gluten intolerance diagnosis would make me uncomfortable. And this show chronicles much more severe diagnoses than that. It is called Diagnosis. It's based on a New York Times Magazine column of the same name, hosted by the woman I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Dr. Lisa Sanders. And what she does is she solicits questions from people who have all of these mysterious symptoms and no diagnosis. Like they go to so many doctors, bring them their symptoms and the doctors are like we don't know what you have and so she uses her own knowledge and then the knowledge of the crowd she loves talking about the crowd she crowdsources diagnoses from not just other doctors around the world but other people who may or may not be suffering from that 
from those symptoms or know people who are suffering from those symptoms, are suffering from those symptoms, and uses all of their knowledge, combined knowledge, to figure out what these people have. Because as she repeats over and over and over again throughout the show, like you cannot get better until you have the correct diagnosis. And that's what the show is. Christine, didn't you watch like the day it came out? Yeah, I think so. What drew you to the show initially? What is your fascination with the medical industry, doctors, sickness, uh, Like, uh, <laughs> what a question. I live inside of a body and mm -hmm. my body has a brain that is obs like I have anxiety disorder. And so things mm -hmm. that can be... Uh, solved through reasoning are very appealing to me. The idea that there might be a system of logic that you can apply to like your biological systems and mm -hmm. deduce what's happening in a given situation is like so calming <laughs> to me. Yeah. So it's nice. Like I, I'm the kind of person that like the moment I notice a symptom in my own body, I'm like documenting it in a note in my phone. Like I go to my doctor at my annual physical and she's like, come on. Um, <laughs> like just take Excedrin migraine. It's okay. I'm like, okay, I just mm -hmm. wanted to like bring it up and make sure, you know, it didn't seem like a wider pattern to you. Mm -hmm. But that said, from like my personal experience, I have, um, an like intimate, uh, view, I guess, or like a firsthand experience with how painful it can be to go through a diagnostic process with somebody mm -hmm. and, how challenging it can be to watch so many different things be at play at the same time when you're really so worried about someone's physical well-being. Like mm -hmm. it's hard um, through just narrative storytelling to convey to people the web <laughs> of mm -hmm. like interacting things that are going on because these doctors yeah. are dealing with patients that they don't necessarily see all the time. They're dealing with mm -hmm. patients who uh, might have sought treatment from other doctors who they're not privy to like what that backstory is. And you're also watching families kind of take the role of quarterback for these people's medical journeys and have to advocate for their loved ones and effectively be a social worker. And it's a huge endorsement, I think, for documentary as a form of communication for journalism specifically. And mm -hmm. that I think having a New York Times editor or like columnist behind the decision making process of the way the narrative function of the show works mm -hmm. means that the kind of like spine of every episode ends up being ethics, even though the medical system is not very ethical. Right. And it creates a really wonderful like work space for all of the problems to be demonstrated really easily with a lot yeah. of different like families and cases and symptoms and so much of like you were talking about like the diagnostic process can be such a, a horror show that's one of the things that worried me about watching the show but what's good about the show is that it's the best case scenario for someone who is in need of a diagnosis yeah like 
these people who are getting helped by the show are really getting helped, like, in a big way. The show is very aware of the fact that, like, this is taking place in a larger universe, in a larger system that is really incapable of doing these things. Like, when you need to solicit the help of, like, a New York Times columnist, like, there's there's a larger, there's a more fundamental, like, systemic problem here, like, in the American healthcare industry. But, like, at least it's working for these people. Right. It's, like, it's doing the work of reporting on the ground. Like, this is what a family in Queens is going through, trying to figure out best steps for taking care of their daughter, who has some sort Mm -hmm. of, like, uh, encephalitis-related illness. Or, Mm -hmm. like, here's um, our father who came home from war in the early 90s and has never been the same since. Like, there are all these different people who you may have, like heard about abstractly but maybe don't have like all of the sensory details to imagine their day in their life Mm -hmm. and they report it and see it through to the end and in a lot of cases really end up uh unfortunately documenting like the toll that it takes on families trying to figure out the problem and the toll Mm -hmm. that it takes on like the patients and their quality of life obviously but then also how these people's access to healthcare is dictated by geography and by who they know and by who they're able to get in touch with and by how well they're able to articulate their problem and by how much they understand of what's going on in terms of like mental health versus physical health or Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just it's a really stunning (laughs) framework i don't like know how to describe it based on my own like my own anxiety and hypochondria um which i feel like manifests itself very differently than yours because i see you as like like that that impulse to write down your your symptoms is a more i don't know measured or like i can't speak to what's actually going on in your head but that sort of physical uh outward reaction is so much more controlled than my own one would be which would just be to panic you know and to absolutely lose my mind whereas you may be doing that internally like at least you're doing the things that maybe the doctor would need like if you did have some sort of wild diagnosis, wild series of symptoms like the people in this show, I feel like you are better equipped to handle those symptoms than I am. <laughs> Not to speak for you, like you would be writing Thanks, them Bob. down. And I would just be like, I would just be like, I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. And you would be like, Bobby, I'm also losing my mind. And I noticed that when I lose my it. mind, I feel hungry and also thirsty. So in eight months, when somebody asks me, I'm going to tell them about it. Yeah. So it's just like it's and so that's why I didn't want to watch the show. But what the show is, is kind of because it's showing you the best case scenario, all of these things, you're like, it's it's comforting to see all of the things work because all of these end with, if not um, a conclusion, like a like a, an actual diagnosis, the hope that one is around the corner or that they've taken the steps to finally get better like the I didn't watch the last two because honestly they were the ones that I looked at the descriptions and I was like I can't do this it mm-hmm. was a struggle to watch five I which one say. was five no it was a struggle to watch the the, the first five. Oh, okay and gotcha. then there was one about deja vu which made me 
I started it and I was like, this makes me really uncomfortable. And then the final one was about paralysis, which yes. again is very triggering to me. The paralysis the- one I was, that was one I warned you about and was like, no, the, the yeah. deja vu one actually is great. The, that's an episode where he's a 20 year old. He's like a gamer and he starts mm-hmm. having these like really serious seizures after like spending an inordinate amount of time without sleep and drinking en- energy drinks. Mm-hmm. He has like one, seizure type event and then it like somehow becomes uh, through muscle memory or through some kind of like quirk of the body it interacts with his pre-existing psychological problems so the episode is actually about how anytime he gets stressed out he ends up having a seizure and so it becomes about his relationship with his mother and they have to like go through therapy together so that he can like or not therapy together but like pursue therapy separately and then have a conversation together so that he can stop having seizures wow okay i might watch that one the paralysis one i think i'm actually going to skip but to go back to one of the episodes that i really liked and a lot of them involve children i would say half of them are about children who have these debilitating illnesses these strange usually like neurological disorders where there was the girl who was having the seizures constantly. There was the girl who, and then there was the girl Kamaya who collapses. It wasn't, it wasn't really paralysis and it wasn't really seizures. She was just sort of like frozen. Falling. Yeah. Like all and of her was frozen. muscles would stop. And they were like, oh, she's dropping again. She's dropping. And so the fear is that she would fall when people are around and then like hurt herself because of that fall. And this woman, the woman who kept, who was just desperate for something and when she she goes on a monologue about how like you think that whenever you have this rare disease that you're going to be taken care of you're going like the spotlight's going to be on you a little more brightly and that doctors are going to pay attention to you but when you are the extreme rarity when you feel like you're the only one then you feel utterly helpless and that's the position she was in where it was like doctor after doctor after doctor could not figure out what was wrong and because of the crowd they found like two other children who had the exact same symptoms right. and then they found that that other doctor who was studying it in rats it, I that mean, the was whole, amazing everything came together they found so it went the case went from being like oh my god my daughter is the only case of this like recorded in people there's no research on it there's no hope that like somebody might be developing a drug that she can try like there's nothing she's just the only person in the world they like identified the gene and they were like it's the it's a break in this gene and it's not anything that she inherited it just happened mm-hmm. and then like because the end or the new york times article went out there was like a researcher in maryland who was like um i've spent my whole career studying this whole gene career. we've never seen it in a person we didn't know people like that were out there i've been like doing it to mice for years i would love to develop a drug for your daughter to try mm-hmm. and it's like the most beautiful <laughs> like bow and then there's that other company at the end and that postscript that's like they're also developing some drugs for it and they're going to treat her free of cost like free of charge which is wonderful right no like cost the research her. community in europe is like very <laughs> responsive to this show there's like italian doctors <laughs> who are like wait you have a per you let a person live 30 years like this <laughs> like <laughs> send them to us people on that's actually one funny part of the crowdsourcing is like having people skype in and sometimes you know it's like a pediatrician or a vet or someone where you're like oh mm-hmm. i can see like what the tie-in is and then sometimes it's it's just like a lady <laughs> or it's someone from really far away uh, 
and that's very cool i think one another thing the the show does well is just by the nature of it being a documentary where they have these camera crews following these people throughout their personal lives you they're not even explicitly called out but they are on camera you witness these hurdles that these people have towards actually getting the diagnosis like leave new york times out of it the one teen who had the black urine and who would just like get extremely sick every few months Mm -hmm, the first episode yeah and then she had her father was like i want grandkids like this is all in your head or like why can't you get why can't you get cured who was frustrated you could tell it was because probably because she'd been dealing with it for so long and he just couldn't figure it out that it was frustrating to him but it was like all of these hurdles that were in her personal life just to getting to the doctor leaving the doctors out of it leaving them the money out of it like just being sick and physically getting to a doctor when like Mm -hmm. people can't tell you what's wrong when the when the people closest to you are also frustrated and really don't know how to express it in a way that is helpful you know right just like yelling at you And then that one was like, oh, you can't, like, just change your diet, sweetie. Like, that she, was a, that was a very satisfying She says that, like, one. the beginning of the episode. She's like, if all of this is that I needed to change my diet, I'm going to be so mad. And then, like, 45 minutes later, her diagnosis is just change your diet. She's Wasn't like, that Great. also someone from Europe who was like, it's fat? Yes, it was that, like. <laughs> your body can't process fat. She And they loved it because she was Italian. So the city that she had to visit in Italy to get the test was, like, where they wanted to have their wedding. Like, when she came back, she was like, we got to go back to Turin. You know. Which episode would you recommend to someone first? Probably that one. If they that's the first one, isn't it? I think that's like the best demonstration if like if you're kind of worried about getting freaked out about like icky medical visuals or like you just don't know if the show's for you, episode one is actually a really great example of like mm-hmm. what the show does. Because, like, they fix her problem, they diagnose her, and they also demonstrate why it was so hard for her to get diagnosed in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's really, like, what the show is at its best. But then I think if you want to get to, like, the heart of it, episode two is really, like, the cutest one to me, Sadie. Which, that's the the girl with the... They, like, give her a brain implant at the end. Like, the brain pacemaker pacemaker, Yes. Yeah. I thought that was, like so great that they were able to find a solution for her that was like felt like it was in the modern times and that one also worked in sort of medical history because it was saying you know years and years ago maybe not even maybe very recent history they would just default to a lobotomy all these doctors were like we really don't want to have to like we don't want to do this this is antiquated medicine but like it's still on the table which is horrifying to think about yeah, it's it's such a daunting. It really gave me insight into like what specifically is stressful about being a parent as a non-parent. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. wow, like there's going to be situations where like you just there's no right answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're looking at like six or seven doctors who have all, all told you to give your daughter a hemispherotomy and like remove half of her brain from her skull so that the infection doesn't spread. And that mother, I think, did a wonderful job of being like, you know, I appreciate the input, but I Mm -hmm. think we're going to keep pursuing. Like, I just can't imagine even being able to be filmed and, like, do that. These people are wildly brave. Brave. Oh, yeah. Every single person they've, every single person they spoke to. And I think you have to be at at some point, like, whenever you are a parent and you're dealing with a sick kid, I feel like there's obviously the learning curve initially where you're like, what do I do? I feel helpless. Um, This is impossible. I have to make sure my kid is okay. And you're probably behaving like in this sort of, you're in this like manic mode. You're probably being very irrational. 
but whenever it becomes this persistent thing, this ongoing thing, you have to learn how to deal. It's like someone, there's like a representative, there's a representative that a parent can send out who's like the strongest, mm-hmm. most articulate like advocate that like I have not, <laughs> I I don't have that in me yet. Yeah. I have not given it, but like it's wild to watch somebody when I can imagine I would only be like, Uh, crying sobbing wetting my pants like where (laughs) just be like completely composed and receiving information and you know trying to do what's but it's it's a it's a crazy thing to let a documentary crew into your house to Mm -hmm. watch you experience live and uh, these families I think are doing a lot more work for other people too than they probably realize oh yeah and i and and that column is too and i and i and i had read the column before but there's something about there are certain things that lend themselves to this sort of visualization like the this actual like documentary angle because i think those personalities and those interactions between the parents and the doctors and the parents and the and the patients and just the the patients themselves can't really be shown to their fullest extent just in in the written word like you need to see these people interact with each other and you need to actually see their demeanor to be as impressed as i was by pretty much each and every one of them in all these episodes and you need to feel the the way that conversation feels in a room and again dr lisa sanders is so wonderful like it's just like the platonic ideal of the pragmatic doctor that you yearn for when you go to maybe like an urgent care when you don't really know what you're gonna get you know Mm -hmm. you're like please give me dr lisa sanders she sounds like an expert she's calm she has like at least one funky piece of jewelry at all times and not funky (laughs) like throwback funky like cutting edge like she's like at the boutiques she is like finding that chunky necklace I also love that they make New Haven look so nice. (laughs) It's always like cutting to her house in New Haven with like Uh, beautiful yellow leaves, like blowing past the camera and her like colonial home with like a red door. (laughs) Yeah. Like that beautiful kitchen. I was like, oh, you kind of updated your kitchen, Dr. Lisa Sanders. Yes. I'm like, wow, they really are selling Connecticut here in a way that I'm not sure it fully deserves. Uh, In the way that I just explained that I tend to avoid stories or shows art media art about chronic illness is there a category of television film just general media that you have a strict absolutely not i won't read or watch that policy oh there has to be there's so many types of masculinity that i just absolutely don't care about like um, a marvel movie i don't even want to have the conversation about you with you about why i don't want to watch it like um, I think Marvel movie. anything with punching, if there's a punching sound effect in it, I, I won't like it. Like <laughs> anything like a car chase, I won't like it. So like anything that Tom Cruise is in, <laughs> anything that like Will Smith <laughs> is in, <laughs> I just really. I was like, I'm with you, honey. Like I don't want anything to do with Marvel. And then but you were then like, you wait, punching. I was like, uh oh, <laughs> uh oh. Like I, there's something about I can handle. It's not like an anti-violence stance or an anti-spies mm-hmm. uh, stance or whatever. It's more that like, if that is going to replace dialogue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The plot better be so fuego, and it never is. It's always like, someone stole something. Like, okay, great. 
this is not art. <laughs> this is a photo shoot. In the most recent, in the most recent three Mission Impossibles, they stole nukes. <laughs> pretty, pretty enormous implications for stolen nukes. A funny thing about Mission Impossible is that they realize the highest stakes they could ever possibly have are nukes. And so they're just so sticking with it. They've just they just only do nukes now, which is is it the kind same nukes or is it new nukes? It's the same. The last three have been the same people generally involved. Okay. But it's not the same nukes. It's the same like sort of uh, nebulous group of supervillains. Gotcha. But they're like making new product all the time. Yeah. Or finding or just purchasing new product. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, but they realize that they can't do more than nukes. <laughs> the people know what they're scared of and it's nukes. So the movies I like watching on planes are the ones you would prefer to avoid always. Okay. Yes. Okay. I think on a plane, I'm more apt to pick maybe like the children's hit that won an Oscar that year or like a rom-com <laughs> I've already watched or <laughs> like TV um, there's not really like a tear of my resting brain where I'm like, okay, now I deserve Mission Impossible. <laughs> I just take it off the menu. You're like Moana again? Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. like Moana for the 17th time. I love that. <laughs> but before we end that, I, I want you to sell pitch diagnosis to our listeners. Convince them to watch it. Because I think it is a hard sell. It's a tough sell. It was a very tough sell for me. It's hard to um, like describe what's valuable about it. But if you like kind of like... Mm, heart-wrenchy political uh, narrative drama, you're gonna like this because it's documenting what's flawed with our medical system, what's wrong with uh, the way that our culture kind of supports and handles illness to begin with and tackles stuff that you're not going to necessarily see in unscripted programming in a way that's actually very digestible and like not a downer. You actually Mm -hmm. feel optimistic that things can be solved and that people are Mm -hmm. good and that people can help each other. (laughs) And it's nice. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a warmer and more comforting show than I ever expected it to be or or was capable of being, you know, like the fact that a show like this can leave you feeling good right. is really shocking to me. It's like she kind of like drops into people's disorganized medical situations and Marie Kondo's them for them, but in ways that mm-hmm. are like very meaningful. Mm-hmm. I guess Marie Kondo yeah. was very meaningful to her clients too. <laughs> and I think she really has ruined me for other doctors. I'm going to be next time when I go to my physical soon, I'm just going to be <laughs> upset that it's not Dr. Lisa Sanders. You're going to be like, I don't know that Lisa Sanders would have said that, but I guess it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to just like wander the streets of New Haven holding a printout of her the facade of her house just looking for it <laughs> until I find it and I just ring the good. bell. That's a good and idea. And knowing her like I do, I think she'll accept. Come she'll on answer. She has, on she has a teapot going. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you for talking to us all about diagnosis, Christine. It was a great conversation. It was great to have Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll see you on Slack. I'll see you on Slack too. Bye, everybody. Uh, you can all watch Diagnosis right now on Netflix. All episodes are now streaming. See you next week. Bye.